This is The Universe, Episode 1, Spark Revolution, on Saturday, February 4th, 2012. So, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you? I'm pretty good. I uh, saw that you went out in the frost this morning. Oh yeah, it was uh, some crazy weather around here. It was a weird fog last night that stuck to all the trees. Yeah, and they got like um, spike frost growing out of them essentially. It's pretty cool. Yeah, made your made for some good uh, photo material. Yeah, you're trying to edit those. Uh, I was gave up. Yeah, photo editing is boring. Yeah, Photoshop is just so much work. So, how's the second semester going for you? Uh, so far, uh, physics sucks, um, but calculus is great. Computer science, uh, discrete mathematics is okay. Uh, it's fairly simple, but it's just kind of unimportant. Mm-hmm. And journalism is fine. How about you? Cool. Um, my classes are pretty good this semester. I'm taking quantum physics and astrophysics, which are both really fun. Um, and I'm also taking a statistics class, which is uh, sort of like the discrete mathematics course you're taking, which I took last semester. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of boring because I have already took it. And then I'm also taking a computer science course, which is the one that you took last semester. And, and how's that doing? How's it going for that's you? That's boring because it's really easy. But uh, whatever. Do you, do, you, do you find any of the discrete mathematics useful in that class? In the 1901 yeah. computer science? Mm-hmm. No. Of course not. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, it, so far, what we've done is, like, super basic. Uh, you, you, I, really, you don't really ever do anything that isn't super basic. Yeah. So, I mean, the discrete mathematics stuff is, like, sort of some of the underlying math behind certain t- sorts of, like, rhythms and things like that. Yeah. At some point in that class, in 1901, you do cover um, stuff more like, uh, you cover basic algorithms. Like, at some point, you need to recursively um, look through uh, a, a sequence of, you know, it's essentially an array. You have to look through a sequence that's net, deeply nested, and you have to reverse the sequence. And because it has nestings, you have to reverse the nestings, too. Um, and, mm. that, and, that, and you have to do it in some weird algorithm way. Hmm. Yeah, and then and then if you do it recur- if you do it recursively, they're like, oh, that's cool. If you do it iteratively, they're like, they drool all over you because nobody knows how to do that, like off the top of their head. Wow. Huh. And I only program iteratively, so. I'll keep that I, in mind. I was the weird one. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't looked through this scheme documentation enough yet to. Well, the scheme docs in the book that um, the MIT Press book, it's it's a very it's not like a reference book. It's more like a textbook. So, if you want mm-hmm. to see the scheme documentation, what I would suggest doing is going to um, Doctor Rackett's do- documentation because it actually has docs that look like docs. It looks like Java doc. Um, somebody actually writ- wrote it to be uh, useful and you know a quick glance kind of thing, not like a textbook. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't Doctor Racket? They made a big deal out of like, don't use Doctor Racket because well, 
So one of the things with Scheme is that MIT um, wrote MIT Scheme, and Dr. Rackett uses Scheme, but Scheme isn't Scheme, it's Lisp, and Lisp goes by, like, R6S6. There's some naming convention that I don't really know. Um, And Dr. Rackett implemented it differently than MIT Scheme, so it's not, like, just something you can mix... Uh, like so, some some functions will return true or false, and other functions won't. Right. And and without having those values predictable, some things are possible and some aren't. I know at some point in the class they give you something called do tests in your homework and in your labs, and what that does is that you write the tests and then it runs them for you, and um, it's really cool because it makes testing a lot faster. But you yeah. can't do it in. Um, Dr. Racket because there's no evaluator method in Dr. Racket for some reason. I don't know why. You'd assume that it would be there. An evaluator method is something that takes raw scheme and evaluates it as if it was in the global scope, essentially. It's it's pretty cool, but... Yeah, that is odd that they're that different. Yeah. So how's... um, Astrophysics and quantum theory, quantum Good. mechanics. Yeah, they're fun. It's uh, stuff that I haven't seen very much of before. So, and so tell so tell me what it's about because I I don't really know about either of them in any real detail from a educational well, standpoint. I don't know. I've only been taking a course for what three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know. So far, I mean, astrophysics is sort of the study of uh, physics on a large scale, and like celestial mechanics and and larger. So like um, how like galaxies are formed and sort of like the structure of the universe is cosmology, which is a subfield of astrophysics and sort of how the universe formed and things like that um, and the physics behind that. And the the physics that certain celestial structures exhibit, like neutron stars and pulsars and things like that. So is the mathematics behind those uh, topics incredibly difficult? Yes. Okay. More more difficult than uh, electromagnetism? Yeah. Okay. I'm not I mean, looking forward to it then. <laughs> it's it It really depends. There's like sort of simplifications of it. The same way that classical classical mechanics is like simplifications of uh, yeah or approximations of the like true physics which we understand more of now right so it, it some has some parallels to that I guess so what about um, the quantum mechanics class uh, that one's really interesting it's uh, sort of I mean quantum quantum physics is just physics on the other end of the spectrum on a really small scale and where it's sort of a completely different set of uh, um, like physical laws and it I mean I'm not too familiar with it so far but it's sort of the whole the quantum revolution was started by Max Planck in the early 1900s um, and he came up with a 
formula to describe the black body spectrum, which is radiation emitted by like stars and things like that. Right. Um, and experimental data didn't fit the current theory at the time. Um, there's something called an ultraviolet catastrophe where as you, the theory, theory fit the data for, um, slightly or for certain wavelengths, but once you started to get into the ultraviolet and above, then it would get completely like it, the theory didn't fit the data at all. It would get, it would go to infinity versus the experimental data, which was more of a bell curve. Um, so that's how quantum theory started is Max Planck, uh, figured out what the actual equation was to describe that curve and sort of manipulated the current understanding of physics to uh, describe that. And through through finding the correct values and form of that equation, he came up with um, the theory of the quantization of energy where it would come yep. in mm-hmm. certain size packets. And that's we, we tried to register quanta.tv for our network. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was taken, unfortunately. That would have been a good one. I know. I wanted to do it so bad. So, do you, do you think there's any hope for um, the, the unified theory that everybody's after? I have no idea. I did see a really convincing... Well, convincing because I couldn't understand all of it. And the guy sounded really smart, but also because it was really like, I don't know, it was just beautiful in a way. This guy um, gave a TED talk mm-hmm. on uh, sort of a, a mathematical representation of the different like uh, elemental particles that we know right now and how they fit into this multidimensional mathematical graph and there is a a hole in the graph right now where we think the Higgs boson should be. Is that like the uh, Lie groups thing? Um, I don't know. Is that the uh, E8 theory? I remember remember reading about this at 1.2 and I, uh, you know, it totally flew over my head so I have no idea, but... Yeah, um, I, I think that I may have blogged about it at some point. But anyways, um, the, yeah, so that formula is, uh, sort of like a multidimensional representation and the whole right now in the number of dimensions that represents what, where we are as far as discovering those particles has, is where the Higgs boson is expected to be when you extend that formula into, like, higher dimensions and stuff, I don't, like, really understand it, but it looks really cool when he projects it <laughs> up on that. Yeah, I found the video for you. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so- I remember um, watching this on the Science Channel, actually, um, maybe, I don't know, four years ago, and I, I was pre- thought it was pretty interesting back then, too, that he could predict with some shape that was, like, 20 dimensions thick or mm-hmm. complex, you know, the all of the elementary particles that weren't discovered yet at the time and then that 
already existed. So that's uh, so you think the Higgs boson is it, so I know it is missing from the from the the shape right now because they haven't found it yet. But you think they're going to find it? Um, I don't know. It'd be cool if they did. I, I like. I don't. I don't really know what the. <clears throat> I mean, everything that I've heard that I understand as like in that sort of field of particle physics is that the Higgs boson is like fairly strongly theoretically supported. And so it would be, I guess I would be surprised if they didn't find it. So uh, what, what is one of the reasons that it's hard to find? Is it because it's so large that it normally, I don't know, self-destructs or something? Um, well, one reason is we've never looked, looked for it before. We've never had, uh, the collisions that generate the, um, like the amount of energy necessary to be able to produce that particle is extremely high. And so before the CERN accelerator, we didn't have um, we didn't have a, a tool to really be able to create that and observe the particle. Um, and so now that we do, uh, people think that we're quite close to finding it. And so, like, I guess the main limitation was that we just didn't have the tools to be able to see it before. Okay. Because I, um, I, I remember reading about, uh, because the Higgs is such a different type of particle, like, it gives mass, or it's re- supposed to be what's responsible for giving mass to um, objects, that it's hard for it to um, be detected in the particle accelerator sensors. Right. Um, that's also something that has to be overcome. And, you know, it, it it's pretty fascinating to think that the sensors can sense those things, considering that the things those sensors are sensing are smaller than they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so I just uh, pulled up the Wikipedia page right now for the Higgs boson while we were talking about that. Um, um, the particle is expected to be as visible at energies above 1.4 tera electron volts. And so... The Large Hadron Collider is colliding to three and a half tera, tera electron volt beams. I find it unfortunate that everybody calls it, and by everybody I mean some new guy, calls it the God Particle, and I, I find that very annoying. Yeah, it's just the popular media. Uh, it's unfortunate. what they I do. So when the Higgs is found, what is it going to uh, do? What what does that validate? Um, well, I think that is uh, one of the particles in the current standard model that is that present in theory and sort of makes the whole thing work. 
and if so if we know that it's there then we can sort of with more certainty say that the standard model is correct so i know you um i know you think the future is really promising and that uh you wrote about this once yes back in the days when i blogged twice <laughs> you mean december right yeah okay. So, um, I, 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 what, did, what did you call this? Because I, I remember you taking it, uh, a quote from somebody else, but what did you call that? Call, um, call what? It, it's this um, kind of like, that he, because humans have had such a bad history, or a poor history of not doing things that they thought were previously impossible, you called it a term. Oh, an anachronism? Yeah, so describe what that is. As, well, it's, uh, the, I guess the, I'm not sure if there's any other definitions, but the way I used it is the definition that I know is that it's sort of something that doesn't belong in that point in time. It's a like a chronological inconsistency. So, uh, like if like a sort of a method of thought that is uh, from the past that sort of doesn't fit in with our modern experience is what I was getting at. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess it could also be like just an example is like if you put the, um, I don't know, the some man from the Renaissance, like Da Vinci, and put him in our time, that would be an anachronism because Definitely. he doesn't belong to So in in your in your post from December, you you say that uh, you know in college a lot now because you know that in college people actually know what they're talking about. You know a lot of people like to say that some things are just impossible and we know that, but but you like to think that it's just incredibly improbable right now, and then it becomes more probable in the future. Is that what you're saying? Um, sort of. Yeah, I mean, not that it's. Like the probability of it being of it being true or possible or whatever changes, but just that our sort of current understanding would lead us to believe that it's not possible. But as we've seen throughout history, our understanding of how things work changes, and so I mean, I don't know. That's sort of always been the case: is that there's always people that say, "Oh, you know, that's not." That's not the way things work. That's not. Um, that's not going to be possible because we know how things work now. But really, you're always learning more in depth and more accurately how things work. A good example relating to quantum physics that we talked about is Einstein, who was the other major contributor contributor to like quantum theory. It um, was uh, submitted his idea that. Um, photons traveled in were packets of energy um, that were quantized, so they only came in a certain amount of energy. And uh, like the, some European, most of the European scientists thought that that wasn't true, and, uh, and they like wrote a letter to some science organization that they should accept Einstein because he was brilliant, but they can, like, even because he was so brilliant that they could just look over this 
silly talk of the quantum theory and stuff like that. Um, but it turns out that that's the, our most, or that's our current understanding of how things work is what they thought was wrong, but what Einstein had put forth. So, I don't know. But I just think it's sort of silly when people think that just dismiss things because we because they think that we have a complete and completely correct understanding of so i mean i i've noticed that you know looking back at um you know after you know not when newton you know did all of his work for classical mechanics but then you know in the 1900s when we actually understood what we were doing we were making machines using those principles you know we thought i imagine we thought that Hey, you know we're pretty good here. We actually know what we're doing, and you know everything's going to be solved soon. Um, but then, you, then Einstein comes out twenty years later with his deal, and uh, you know general relativity changes everything about classical mechanics. So, what? When do you think the next pinnacle, the next changing point um, for that comes? Um, well, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, theories put forth that sort of. Uh, extend quantum theory even further or sort of modify it to like string theory and string field theory and different things like that i'm not certain i don't remember names of any other theories like that but like there's different versions of the standard model that people have put forth um and so i think that one of those could be our next understanding the same way that einstein's uh, general relativity and quantum theory was uh, like he came up with that before it was completely like verified and accepted and used in uh, in like making things like right. quantum theory is mm-hmm. responsible for like our transistors today and like integrated circuits things like that um, so it could be something that we already have or that people have already theorized and just hasn't been we don't have enough data or theory backing it up that it's that we know that that's like the next thing that it's true or it could be something that we just haven't discovered yet and it's going to be some like some data that we come up with with the large hadron collider or maybe the it, that could be that could spark a revolution in quantum theory, um, like the science of the very physics at the very small scale, mm-hmm. or the new satellite that NASA is launching to study the cosmic microwave background could sort of spark a revolution in our understanding of physics at a very large scale. Um, so, yeah, I'm not I, I'm not sure. I guess. So, do you but, think it's the the next big? turning point um, is going to be through theory or is it going to be through experimentation so that, you know, like somebody actually does discover the Higgs boson somewhere and we actually can verify that all of these other things are true and then the theory that make, you know, that actually predicts that emerges from, you know, the boiling pot of all the theories or do you think the theory is going to pinpoint a way to do the experiment to get the answer? Well, I think so... Um... Currently, most of the most of it works um, in the the way you first described, where someone collects data 
um, and experimentalists collect data and then theorists try and come up with something to explain that data because it, it probably doesn't fit with the current theory. Um, I think that's generally how big revolutions come about. But, I mean, the Higgs boson is the other case where uh, theory that has been developed through uh, experimental data collected across sort of all different areas of physics has come up with a standard model which is missing a piece, um, which is the Higgs boson. And say, if we, so that, that would be a case where theory sort of pinpointed something that we then know to look for instead of us coming up with data that we then have to come up with a theory to explain. So I, I think it can happen both ways. Right. I, 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 I'm thinking that at this point, you know, I, I, I don't know all the theories either, and even if I did, the math would totally just go over my head, and I, I don't even compute uh, electromagnetism. But it seems to me like with all the theories we have, I think experimentation right now is what we need to do more of to verify or to at least uh, uncover the direction we need to go in to get to the next set of theories that will be groundbreaking. Because it yeah. seems like we're reaching the point on the exponential curve where we're just going vertical and we need to you know, uh, essentially zoom out far enough now to see that we're still pretty horizontal so that we yeah. can get to the next uh, level of warp, one might say. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, I mean, like at the U of M, the, most of the professors in the physics, the Tate Laboratory of Physics are theorists who sit in their offices and theorize and I think that the current state of theory in physics is fairly advanced and there's a lot of theories that are sort of predicting the next level which we haven't even come up with experimental data to verify our current understanding nonetheless the next sort of the next step so I, I definitely agree that more experimental data would be a better sort of catalyst for a new, for like a revolution in our understanding of physics. Right, yeah, definitely. So do you think physics going forward will still be based upon relativity? Because, I mean, essentially all our physics still goes back to the you know, groundbreaking that Einstein did, and then, you know, slightly more now with electronics, u utilizing quantum mechanics. But, I mean, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that... Uh, in the new, near future, some big revolution will supplant that, or will we still use that for the time being? Um, for the new, near future, definitely I would say that that's fairly uh, stable as far as being accepted as a, as a, a fairly comprehensive theory. Um, but... I don't know. The, I mean, there was an experiment that faster of faster than light neutrinos, and uh, a lot of people made a big deal about how you know that must be just a mistake in the data, or a mistake, some systematic error, or something like that, um, because that would have violated re relativity, um, and the sort of uh, the historical response to data that doesn't fit the current theory has been the same as that, where people 
try and come up with errors to make the data fit the theory. One example would be um, the first experiment to come up with an uh, experimental value for Planck's constant, which is a very important number in quantum physics, um, was the Millikan oil drop experiment. And so um, I'm not sure what his first name is, but uh, Millikan did perform this experiment and obtained an experimental value for Planck's constant. Um, and successive experiments would deviate over time above that. So this was because his value was too low. And But it took a long time for the accepted experimental value to reach the current level because people would, if they got data that was too high, they would come up with re things that may have gone wrong to try and fit their data to the current number. Um, so it's a problem of expectations and what we want to yeah. believe in. Yeah, so yeah. It, I, I think that a lot, science kind of has a, an issue with that, sort of the way that experimental verification is done. But, I don't know, I, I'm sure it's getting better. I mean, there's no way to know if something's right until, I mean, you repeat experiments right. to know if, if it if it stays consistent, then it's less wrong than it is right, so then it's good enough to go on. And yeah. building more things on it that also turn out to be right usually works, too. So, I mean, that mm -hmm. that's how experimentation works. That's the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, scientists still, if something doesn't fit their current understanding and their current values or the current data um, projections, then they tend to look for why that could be versus looking at maybe the current values and seeing why those could be wrong. So, I mean, right. although it could be more likely that their experiment is wrong, it's often just sort of thrown out the window that things that deviate so far from our current understanding could be true. Well, Which, I, I mean, we, you know, at, at, at the U, we do... Um... We do pre-labs, and we're supposed to predict what we expect to happen in the lab. And usually I have no clue what's going to happen in the lab because it's electromagnetism. But aside from that, you know, you have a general idea of what's going to happen. And then during the lab, if something doesn't work, we just make up the data, essentially, to fit what actually does happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I suspect that happens all the time in all sciences. Yeah. Probably on, a, like, a more more important things as well like there's been a lot of uh, um sort of controversy over the way that journals decide what should be published like scientific journals because uh, especially in like fields i think specifically like psychology and uh s stuff like that um people will not have large enough sample sizes and they'll come up with a uh, hypothesis and either confirm or uh, debunk that hypothesis. And, right, of course, yeah. And then it could just turn out that they happen to have a 
non-representative sample size. And of course, it all right. goes back to money too, because with you know, without money, you can't have a large sample size. Right. You can't do the necessary research, the necessary yeah. exp- uh, experimentation. So it all goes back to money and funding. Exactly. And um, and that, well, so the way that those so you hear about these uh, like theories that people come up with based on experimental data, and then it like people stop talking about it, and then a couple of years later, it's like, oh well, you know that stuff we talked about two years ago was wrong. Turns out because the small group comes up with the hypothesis that they either confirm or deny, and then people will be like, oh, you know that's interesting. Let's let's test this with a bigger sample size right, because yeah. we either want to prove it, like prove it, prove it, or we think that it's wrong. And then so like over time, with larger sample sizes and better experimentation, it we figure out like the true case. And I think so I, I think that kind of you know uh, experimentation to prove or disprove is the right way to do it. Uh, and you know you know the, the matter of scaling is probably pretty important too. Like um, you know a small group can't do too many experiments in too short of a time. You know it takes time to actually do the experiment, take the data, analyze the data, and then go write about it. So I mean two years for turnaround isn't unexpected it's just in in terms of normal people lives and in terms of the growth of other industries relative to science and research that seems like a long time mm-hmm. yeah that's very true so let's new topic what do we yeah. got uh, uh i think for our next topic we have um Something less about physics and more about um, neuroscience and, and uh, computer science as well. I think. Yeah. So, um, I read a book. Mm, let's see. I think it was in uh, my sophomore year in high school, and um, it was the Revelation Space series. So it was the first book of that. And one of the things they could do is they could digitize the minds of people, essentially, and into um, it, it's not artificial intelligence because it's not artificial. It was somebody's mind, but it's now a computer at that point. Uh, they've they've been digitized to the extent that they maintain their personality and all of their, you know, uh, old mannerisms essentially. So I, in that book, it uh, you know they they just I don't know they like they took a a cast one might say of the neuron pattern in the brain and then they turned it into an AI essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you found a story that uh, there's some sound recording based on reading people's minds. So, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, this is a sort of a, a big... Uh, there have been a couple big steps lately in um, sort of the understanding how the brain... or basic but pretty important steps in understanding how the brain interprets um, signals from your senses, uh, such as vision and hearing and things like that. So this particular experiment was done based on uh, the brain's response to speech. And so this was done uh, on people who 
were receiving brain surgery for other reasons and had volunteered to be hooked up to an electrode net like directly onto their brain. So this is very like there's no interference and things like that. So it's fairly confident data set that they received and they would play sounds to the people who were had the electrode nets hooked up and reconstruct the like the sounds heard based on the uh, firing of like the firing of neurons in the brain. And so I think I can actually play those sounds, so let's see if that works. Waldo? Structure. Town. Doubt. Property. Pencil. So what? What? Oh, wait, doing it again? Oh no! No, don't do, don't do it again! Don't do it again! Okay. So what that was is the first time you heard the word, it was what they were sending to the person. You know, that's what that's the word that was given, and then the next two repeats of that was two different algorithms to reconstruct the word based on the neuron patterns. Mm-hmm. So do you think? No, I mean. Any programmer could have figured out an algorithm to turn some crap into some more crap. I mean, it it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to go from one word that's being input and then just say that the neuron net or the, yeah, the, you know, the net on the brain mm-hmm. just happened to be picking up those patterns. So, I mean, do you think it was really picking up those things? Um, yeah, I mean, the... The being able being able to uh, read brain activity and it just seems so impossible and not only well see there I'm doing it again uh, but it just seems so uh, imprecise that you couldn't actually know. Yeah, well, I'm the. I mean, sort of a argument against why this might uh, be sort of skewed data is because uh, the way that they reconstructed after they reconstructed the words, they didn't know which original word to match it up with, and so that's what the researchers did, and they knew which words to that they had to match up the data with, and so they matched up the closest sounding ones. Right, of course. But it turn I'm I'm I guess I haven't read like the actual paper, but from what I gather from the article is that they were able to match it up blindly to the correct word. Like they knew which signals, which reconstructed signals belong to which words. I don't know. And- I, I I just think that in order to know if this is really true, you'd have to do a lot more bl- double blind testing so oh. that you know you you couldn't. Like oh, I I knew I knew what we we said at Waldo, so of course that's Waldo. I mean, that's right. obvious. So I think you need um, double blind testing. So somebody else gives them a word, and then somebody else has to pick which word said it was from. Right. Well, I I mean definitely needs more investigation, but I don't think that it's that far fetched. There was another article, um, 
on a similar thing uh, published in like a, a Berkeley journal on current biology or something, um, which used a similar technique, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, to monitor brain activity um, and reconstruct what people see in video. Uh, uh. So if you see like a clip some TV clip, they'll use a magnetic resonance imaging to detect the what areas of your brain are experiencing the most activity and can reconstruct a similar or like a a fairly close representation of that from just you know, your brain activity. Uh, and, uh, uh, that, that that actually seems more uh, impressive. I mean, isn't it interesting that they can also look at the neuron activity on the outside of the brain, where these um, input thing, uh, these inputs aren't necessarily processed? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the input from the eyes is not processed on the outside of your brain. It's somewhere deeper inside. Yeah, that I'm not sure. I don't know too much about neurobiology. Yeah, I, I don't do that like, either. Yeah. Um, but so, so are you talking about the electrode nets that were used in the right. audio? Yeah, construction exactly. Exactly. So I think that they were, so just reading this article right now, they placed the electrode nets directly on a region called the posterior superior temporal gyrus. I, whatever, it's a name, which is believed to play a crucial role in speech comprehension. Um, so that would be a case of uh, sort of knowing or thinking that we know where to look for these specific brain signals versus, like you said, the fMRI from the video was uh, imaging of uh, the whole brain and all, like, the brain activity in, in all different parts. Right. So where, where do you see this technology going? Um, I don't know. I mean, once it's developed, the some ideas that, that people got after seeing the video reconstruction is that you'll be able to see your dreams like played on a TV essentially. Okay. Um yeah, or memories, be able to convert your memories into Well, just imagine how blurry memories already are and then having them even blurrier on the screen. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, not in HD. Eventually, eventually, you know, the technology, I I mean, maybe you could take pictures with your eyes. Maybe everyone would have photographic memory literally. Yeah, right. So what, so, what, so what, what, do you, what do you think the uh, time frame is on this? Maybe, oh, th- you, you know, decades? I imagine I decades. Know. It's always hard to tell what the time frame is on something because, I mean, what the internet is 30 years old and we have cloud storage already. Oh, I, you know, you make it sound like that's acceptable. Um, but to me, it seems like science involving humans and science involving... So, like, biology is at a point where it deviates from, like, physics. Like, physics, you can just test and test and test and test. 
And, you know, there's no real ramification of just spending more money and just testing more. But Mm -hmm. there are, for more people, I think there are moral and conscious objections to, um, you know, all of those things. And so it seems to me, but not not even that, but the, the science aspect of biology and how we essentially don't know how the brain works as much as we know how electrons work how we know there are quarks in those electrons we know the the behaviors of those but we don't even know how neurons can communicate in the way they do we can't replicate it we can't do anything about it we can hardly even model it in a successful way so it just seems like the biological science the neurological science is just so much further behind than everything else so it seems like we're still further behind in that category i think that that's because the Things that are the thing, like the the subject of neuroscience studies the brain, which is like one of the most complex organisms that we know of. Right, is exactly. Most complex. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's. I mean, so they say technology, like there's a Murphy's doubling law or something, like every. 18 months, the number of transistors in the chip doubles, something like right. that. Yep. Um, and that's sort of representative of the exponential growth in uh, our current levels of technology. And uh, Well, he was saying that that's the number of transistors on a chip. Well, that's been extended, though, to advances in computer science and uh, tech- like consumer technology and things like that. Not which makes sense because that doubling which makes yeah, sense right. because all of the things people buy now are technology right exactly so but that i think that there's a similar rule to all sciences that our understanding is growing exponentially maybe not to that degree maybe it's not doubling every 18 months maybe it's adding an extra 0.01% every 18 months or something okay. like that. Right, but, right. So it's, it is, it is, we are understanding faster and faster, and I think that's the case. I, from what I can tell, I mean, it's, I don't know, so it, it's hard to tell how long things are going to take to become sort of verified and commercial, like, commercially available or like some form of them like is that what you were asking about how long is this going to be before i can well i mean see my dreams well not not like but i don't even even mean to like use it like in a like an iphone kind of device i mean just to use it in like a special case like in an emergency room or uh, i don't i don't even know why you'd use it there but i mean well, i mean got uh, shot, you could identify this okay shooter. right like something like that i mean it's not even mainstream it's just available for use yeah. Uh, well, I. I mean, yeah, it's, I think still the it, there's a, a fairly large uncertainty as to how long these things take. Um, we, I mean, like we have a poor track record of predicting what's going to happen in the future. People 50 years ago thought we'd have jetpacks, but would be amazed by a cell phone. So, uh, who knows if this will go anywhere? I. I mean, per, I. I would think that things like this are going to be present in the future so i don't know well, my best guess in my, be like, I, it seems to me like 
somebody from 20 years ago would be more impressed with a jetpack still than a cell phone because 20 years ago, the mindset of humanity wasn't interconnected like it is today. Um, that, that traveling really fast individually would still be more useful and more important potentially than having access to all knowledge instantaneously. So I guess it depends uh, on where you're looking I think to. that they would be more Im- amazed by a cell phone. I mean, well, it doesn't, I don't so think so. I don't you, think they'd understand. They I don't think they could grasp what the purpose right. of it was. I think that's exactly why it would be amazing. If you think, oh, you know, I'm going to be able to fly. I can fly in an airplane. I want to fly by myself with a jetpack in 50 years. And then you travel 50 years in the future and you can talk to someone on the other side of the world instantly. Okay, okay. So if you're, going, oh. if you're doing it like that, so I was bringing the cell phone technology back 30 years and you're bringing the person who from 30 years ago to now. Or, That's... Yeah, I mean, if you... if you, I, I would think the other way around. If you, say, take a jetpack and a cell phone and travel 50 years in the past and give them to the same person, I would say that they would be more amazed the, that the cell phone would, like, create more of a sense of wonder um, than the jetpack because it's so much more outlandish. But I don't think it is. I mean, uh, you know, 20 years right. ago, which would no, have been the no. 90s, uh, yeah, cell phones didn't exist in all, at all, really. I mean, you know, military well, had it, but not really. And, you know, but, but every, everybody had TVs and there were game consoles. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's too much of a big break to see, oh, look, it's a screen that can do stuff and you can touch it. Great. But a, but a jetpack, you can fly around. Yeah, I mean the first. So the first telephone, mobile telephone call, was made in uh, nineteen forty-six, and uh, j- the jetpack thing I think was around the same time. We were there was a big interest. They, there was the space race and things like that. Science fiction had lots of jetpacks. Right. Uh, and so I think. Like 1950 would be a better year to look at. Okay. So people can. Well, see, in in 1950, I think it's even a bigger um, like disparity because people never would connect between themselves in that way. I don't. I don't think people would understand what was going on. If you gave somebody from 1950 the internet, and people were born in 1940 who you know knew how to read in 1950, those elderly people still don't really understand how to engage on the internet. They just don't understand what it's for. But I think they would all, but they would understand what a jetpack was for. Yeah, but I, I think that to someone from that time, a cell phone would be more amazing than a jetpack. I, I don't know. I, the Maybe it's just this specific example, but I think that having a device that you can talk to somebody that you can't see. Like that's that's ridiculous. That's magic. But they had that Versus already in nineteen fifty. Jetpack is some physics. But they had that in nineteen fifty. They had phones in nineteen fifty. Right. So they had phones, but they were landlines. And so you bring a phone from today. Not only is it wireless, but you can see things on the screen and access information. Like, you can read an encyclopedia on this tiny little brick, and uh, I don't know, I guess that seems like it would be more amazing than being able to fly, which 
can already do. Maybe not with a jetpack, but well, I, I guess I guess you could do both things. You could fly and you could communicate in 1950. But I, I think more people would accept being able to fly, and they would find more uses for it. They would find that more amazing as a thing that could be actually daily amazing in their life compared to a phone that while they could talk to other people, people just weren't in the mentality of talking to others, you know, anytime, anywhere. I mean, people still have the stigma of texting at the table and, you know, I, I just don't see that working as well, um, in nineteen fifty culture. I'm yeah, I'm not saying that it wouldn't that it would work better. I'm just saying that but I just I, th- I think I, I think their cultural differences would block their ability to interpret how amazing it is. Maybe from a technological standpoint, if you gave it to a scientist, they would definitely find the phone more interesting. But for a normal person, I think I think being able to fly is still winning. And maybe like as far as how cool it is, but I think how like outlandish the idea, how futuristic being able to talk to someone that you can't see is a more magical, I guess. I don't know. But the way, the way I think of it, it, my original like point was uh, that we have a poor track record of predicting the future. People in the 50s thought that we would have jetpacks by the day. We don't really, but instead we have like cell phones and laptops. Um, not, I mean, like, not instead, it's not like this, I didn't do that instead, but you know what I mean? We, we don't have jetpacks, we have cell phones. Um, and so... Well, I think it was easier for us to develop cell phones because it actually made sense. It's a lot cheaper. Right. Well, so, right. But that's my my point is that the uh, someone from the fifties who had you know can see jetpacks in science fiction magazines and things like that would be more. I don't know. Would think that the if you told them that in fifty years. You're gonna have this device that lets you talk to people on the other side of the world just from like a small metal brick in your hand, and they would be less able to believe that than a jetpack, which I take as an indication that it's more outlandish and amazing. Okay, well, I guess I guess that's true. It would be more unbelievable. But I guess my my idea of amazing is different. That my idea of amazing is that, you know, that's that's incredible. I could actually this this is a turning point in history. I can fly around now, or I can talk to somebody. Right, but flying around really doesn't doesn't matter. That that wouldn't be a turning point in history. Having jetpacks wouldn't like do anything for us as a, as like a as a race, as like a, the human race wouldn't benefit from being able to fly around nearly as much as we have from. Oh, I, I, and, but I, I, I agree, and I just think maybe it depends also on the type of person. You know, if you give, uh, again, if you give a scientist a cell phone, it is a lot more interesting than a jetpack. I mean, the jetpack problem has been solved time over time, but you know, the cell phone problem still isn't solved. It just depends on where you're coming from and who you're giving it to. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, I think that a scientist would be even less, I don't know, less able to use a cell phone in the manner that we do today than a regular Well, they, they would be more curious on how it was implemented. And I right, don't... But they I, wouldn't be able to understand, like, if, if you tried to explain uh, 
string theory to a 1950s scientist, they would be like, you're insane. So well, I, I don't know. I guess uh, I would think that like a cell phone would elicit similar response. I think it would, but I think uh, a person in the 1950s that was a scientist would be able to not have the cultural blockage that would say, well, watching TV, talking to people across the world, that's pretty cool. I, I could actually do that in my life. That is actually amazing. I don't, I don't think that a scientist would have so many blockages through cultural or problems or, you know, just being accepting. I think uh, a scientist would have a better time at doing it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm unconvinced. And then we have a, uh, you know, speaking of the 1950s, we have a picture here from, or a retake of a picture from 1972. Um, in uh, 1972, uh, Apollo 17 flew around the Earth a couple of times, I hear, and they took some pictures. And do you know what those pictures were called? Uh, I'm not sure. Those were the original blue marble pictures. So, you know, the, the, the famous picture of the Earth, you know, uh, with, you know, deep, deep blue Earth, uh, a picture of, I don't know, just the Earth with some clouds, and uh, it's, it's essentially a picture of Africa and, uh, you know, a little bit of the Middle East. And uh, we've taken another picture uh, just like that a couple months ago, and NASA just released it. So this picture isn't, like... You know, they're not far away, they're, and they're not just taking one picture of the complete Earth, but they're taking a picture, or they're taking multiple orbits around the planet and taking multiple pictures and then stitching them back together. So, you know, for our album art here, we use pictures of space things. So, yeah. what, what, do you, what do you think of these uh, blue marble pictures that NASA is re-releasing? Um, well, looking at comparing the two of them on the link in the show notes, um, first thing that hits me is how ridiculously, like, similar the weather patterns are. Oh, yeah, you're right. 40 years apart. That's, that's crazy. But as far as, I mean, I don't know, that, that picture... The original picture is sort of along that picture, along with the picture called Earthrise, which was taken from the moon. Yep, I remember that one. um, Right, in the first Apollo landing. Yep. uh, Those those two um, are sort of the a fairly. I don't know. It, that those are the sort of things that sort of inspired people to pursue space exploration, I guess, or sort of inspired people to become scientists, to be curious about our universe and things like that. You know, I wonder. I'm I'm sure most people in America would recognize that as Earth, but I wonder if that's. I wonder if I'm being overly optimistic, you know? Like, if you went out on the street somewhere and you just, like, hey, do you know what this is a picture of? And it's like, no. Pretty sure people would know. Oh, but I I, I don't know. I'm just, I feel like trusting that that it's true. 
that people would know is probably a bad thing to believe in. Right. I, I I remember, you know, somebody asked, uh, you know, on uh, it was some some comedy show, you know, like how the comedian goes out on the street, and you know, they they ask, so where's the International Space Station? And of course, the answer is Texas. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, I mean, you know, they pick the stupid answer for the show, but I mean, it's just. Right. There's, well, it's like you go ask some like old person who lives in Florida, "Where is the Eiffel Tower?" They'll tell you it's in Vegas because there's a well, okay, Vegas. well, that, that's true, I guess. But I mean, it's just I am some. I'm sure there's somebody somewhere that doesn't know that that is Earth, and that's what Earth looks like. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it depends where you go. I guess then. I'm thinking I mean, Midway. I I feel like you'd get the. Uh, Pretty good response, actually, in Midway. Yeah, Versus gunshots. if you went to, like, uh, Alabama. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, in the swamps. Yeah. Those, those guys that yeah. live out there. Alligators can't oh. answer. <laughs> exactly. So, I don't know. Well, so, since we're talking about NASA, you know, recently there's been a uh, story, essentially, that that NASA has been relying on technology that's 40 years old and that, you know, we sent humans to the moon and then that's, that's kind of where we stopped. We stopped using technology to actually do big monumental things. But of course we launched satellites galore. We've launched uh, probes out to Mars. We smashed one into an asteroid somewhere. You know, we've circled planets. We've sent, we've sent uh, probes outside of our solar system into the helio sheath. So, I mean, despite NASA using really old stuff, does it matter? Um, hold on. Give me a couple seconds to open the link to that. Uh, Don't worry, we can we can edit out the time lag here. Okay. We do that a lot. All right, got it. Um, so... Uh, is too reliant on technology. So, you, I mean, give me a second to skim this so I can say something. So, I'd, I'd say that the that issue with NASA not applying sort of a, the cutting edge of technology is definitely... Uh, it's, it's present, but in... Not like in every sort of in every thing that NASA does. Like the article cites uh, not much work being done on spacesuits since the Apollo mission, which was four years ago. Right. Um, versus, say, our current telescopes and things like that. The James Webb Telescope is being built right now. Uh, is like cutting edge technology. So I mean definitely there that there would be benefit to uh using cutting edge technology in every field. But I think that since human space exploration hasn't been as big of a deal since the Apollo missions four years ago. And it makes sense that maybe technology in that 
area is not as current as, say, in the uh, unmanned exploration area where our, the Mars Science Laboratory is one of the most advanced pieces of equipment that's, like, ever been built. Uh, well, so how do you feel about, like, the space shuttle program being canceled, canceled completely so that we can't even develop, like, the International Space Station, not that it did anything for us anyway? Right. Well, that's that's what I... I mean, we, the International Space Station wasn't. I don't think it was important. That was a that was like a team building exercise for countries of the world. Right, so, right. It was that post uh, post Cold uh, War post Cold right? War, you know, community building, as you said. That's what it was. I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the shuttle program being canceled. Not too disappointed. Shuttles weren't really a very efficient way for us. Well, they to weren't get efficient, to... but they were—they were a way for us to get there. Right, but I mean, the Apollo rockets were more efficient than space shuttles. Yeah, but you have to space make a new one have... every time. Yeah, and so the space shuttle was developed to get to the space station, which is mm, not super useful. Right, right. But it, right. So I'm—I'm I'm not super disappointed. However. The cancellation of the constellation program. No, I, was, I apparently I hadn't heard about this. What is that? Because I, I don't actually. So know. the constellation program was a. Uh, I think it was during the Bush administration that NASA, that one of NASA's goals became to try and put humans back on the moon, and the constellation program was like the Apollo program, but a modern version. Okay. To try to put humans back on the moon. And that was uh, that was scrapped. We're not going back anytime soon uh, because uh, I. Um, so the constellation program was uh, uh, terrible at this. Um, I mean, it seems like. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm reading through that Wikipedia page too, and you know they they had varying uh, plans to get back to the moon and then from the moon do more stuff. Well, yeah. So the the I mean, like like I said, the Bush administration during the Bush administration, uh, the president George Bush, I know requested him. that NASA uh, come up with a of a long-term plan for space exploration and uh, i think one of the things that was requested to be in that plan was uh a like lunar exploration a return to the moon like so what it says here on wikipedia is that they wanted to harvest and process lunar material into rocket fuel or breathable air according to bush experience could be gained to develop and test new approaches and technologies and systems to build to begin a sustainable course of long term exploration, presumably if not the moon, but in space in general. Yeah, I mean I Yeah. And the... and so he wanted to uh reduce costs. He wanted to invest technology now so that cost in the future would be less. Yeah. I I don't know. The harvesting and processing of lunar soil part, I mean like that's unlikely. Well, no. I mean, like, H3 is a uh, viable, like, nuclear 
fuel source, and it's like super. Uh, is there? I don't. I, I mean, I, I guess I don't know too much about the moon's composition, but is H three really that prevalent? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it, it's definitely like that's a. It's not a like a ridiculous goal. Um, it's just that I don't know that that was the. I didn't hear that that was like a big reason behind it. I guess. Um, yeah, when when I when I heard about the constellation program, but so so yeah, the constellation program put in place by the Bush administration, um, and. Then was so that was our way to that was the our way to get back to the moon. That was the only like that's the only way to get back to the moon, and it was canceled by the uh, Obama administration in 2011, I think. Right. Yep. Um. And, uh, yeah, so that this could uh, turn into a discussion of uh, Obama's decisions as far as massive funding goes, or we could talk a little bit more about the old technology thing. Why don't we talk about the old technology? Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, definitely... As far as uh, using modern technology in certain fields, I don't think that it's that big of a deal um, because uh, the fields where the technology hasn't been improved are fields where we're not really going anywhere anytime soon, I guess. But doesn't that make uh, it unlikely that we'll return there in any reasonable time in the future? Um, or do you think we can catch up whenever we need to? I mean, well, so in the case of the spacesuits, a big concern as far as that goes would be protecting against cosmic radiation. However, that's also like a a job for the like the casing of the shuttle or whatever vehicle we use to get into space in the future um so i don't know i'm i I mean i don't think that i guess from from what i had heard before i looked at this article was that nasa i mean like nasa is fairly cutting edge on a lot of things um so i don't know I mean, I, guess. I, I mean, I know NASA does a lot of stuff still, and uh, you know, I totally would support their efforts today. Um, but it just seems like they're not doing any, doing anything in space, aside from. Well, I mean, right now, unmanned exploration is like huge. We have more probes and right, robots right. in space than, and I know, but it just. That's great and all, but there, you know, as opposed to a return to the moon or any attempt to really get to Mars, or even you know the International Space Station was a not only a community building a project, but it was also an experiment to have people long term in space, and it just seems yeah, but, like we're not I mean, doing those things. Astronauts don't really even spend that long in the space station; like they they don't 
put them up there for long enough because of yeah, risks right. of yeah, poor health and things like that. And so, I mean, I think that's a whole another discussion on how people sort of view the 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 worth of space exploration. But as far as if, like going to Mars and uh, like going to the moon. I mean, going to the moon again is not super useful, which I think is one reason that it was canceled. I mean, like we've been there. There's not much there. There's not. I mean, there's not much reason to go back. Um, I know that like Bush cited the. Like you said earlier, he cited like testing of. Uh, I don't even think that's. A, I don't even think that's a real reason to go back either. But I think the moon isn't. A, it, it's not to go to the moon. It's to go to the moon to go other places. Right, but I I think that why not just skip like, the moon altogether? Yeah, I well, mean, yeah, we I could know. do that the, too. But I mean, that hasn't like worked. A, right, because uh, that's not this. I, I don't think that the current sort of national view on right. space exploration is it, 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 in the climate isn't really right at well, the moment. I, I guess it hasn't really been right in the last 40 years because things are getting old. It, well, it hasn't really been right in the past, uh, past 20 years or so, I think. Hold on. Give me a, a second here. Um... I don't know. I'm, the climate was fairly ripe for these sort of things until, yeah, I guess the mid mid seventies. Right. So, so that, that's when most of the launches pretty much stopped. And yeah. And yeah. right. And so since then, our approach to space exploration has been changing, and the national sort of view of that pursuit has been changing. And I think that, especially. And not not so much in like the past thirty years or forty years or twenty years, but well, really I don't think it was like, past, like, hey, we hate NASA now. I think it was more of, um, you know, we did it, and now we're going to go focus on other more important things that are closer to home and that well, actually make us money or actually right, have something I, to do with I think, us. I think that was more in the past ten years. Well, I, 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 I mean, I think after after the Cold War ended, I mean, people had no incentive to compete with other countries, and then. You know, without that, that's kind of what the emblem of NASA was. You know, like, hey, we're winning. Well, yeah, I mean, like, going to the moon in the first place was like a slap in the face for the Soviet Union. Like, right. That's a big reason that we did it. But I think that the sort of the national view on space exploration was still favorable, like, in until, like, the Mars Opportunity Rover was in the late 90s, right? Um, um, well, I think it was launched back then, but I know Spirit and the other person was more recent than that. It was like in the 2000s, early, early 2000s. Sojourner. That was the first one. That's what I'm thinking of. So Sojourner, the Mars Pathfinder, landed successfully in 1997. Um, and I think that even then, I mean, like, when I was in elementary school at that point, uh, there was a it was a big deal. Like, oh, I remember the big uh, deal. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, and so I think that people were more 
I don't know, I guess more excited maybe, or like there was more interest in that sort of thing up until about 10 years ago when issues started to arise here on planet Earth and sort of our attention has been diverted from uh, space and people have sort of, the, the climate is now such that people think that spending money in space is a waste. I can um, see why they think that. I agree. You agree that it's a waste or you No, no, I mean I agree that I, that it's, that's that I agree that's what people think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they shouldn't think that. But so I mean I don't think that Yeah, where did this conversation even start? Uh, who knows, but that's okay. That's the point. Yeah. Well, I was going to like try and like link this into my original point if I had one, but I don't even know what it was. <laughs> so that's okay. Um but anyway, so yeah, the I don't know, the current the current national view on space exploration is not particularly favorable, I guess. So yeah. why, do you, why do you think it isn't favorable? I mean, what issues in the world are taking precedence over that? I don't see any single national issue completely overshadowing well, it. I mean, other than, you know, the economic issue. But, I mean, right. it's not like we were just rolling in the change in 1960 so, when we were launching all over the place. Well, I mean, we sort of were coming off of a huge boom after World War II. That's true. But, so, well, to, to answer your first question, I think I was just listening to uh, an interview with a very cool person. If any of you listeners haven't, don't know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is or haven't heard him speak before, um, he's, a, he's really knowledgeable. He's a big advocate for space exploration and things like that. So anyway, I was listening to... Uh, we'll get a link for the show notes. Yeah. Give him the old uh, Nexus bump. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyways, I was in an interview uh, with him, and he made an excellent point that people now say, you know, I just lost my job. I'm going to be foreclosed on. I can't afford to buy groceries the whole week. I mean, like, why are we spending money in space when things are going so poorly down here um and he made an excellent argument as far as like you get people interested in nasa nasa is like a force of nature inspiring people in the fields of science technology engineering and mathematics the stem fields that really are important for a country's economic future right if you inspire a young generation to be interested in that then they're the people that stimulate your economy in the future. They're the people that keep you sort of at the forefront of uh, the world as far as scientific and technological advancement, which is a big issue that the Obama administration has been trying to deal with, uh, the United States falling behind. And so I, I mean, like, there's a whole generation of people that were inspired by NASA uh, to become scientists and engineers and things like that and since the apollo missions and the moon landing that's sort of gone by the wayside nasa hasn't done anything like that to inspire a new generation of scientists mm -hmm. and if we were to do so if we made a mars landing in 2020 then 
by the time that those kids that were in elementary school and junior high at the time, you know, 10, 15 years later, they're in the industry and that's the sort of long-term fix that we need that, right. that would really change things, turn things around. So do you, do you think that, you know, like from, from our generation, you know, our, our time in, you know, elementary through middle school, through high school to now, do you think this period of time was conductive or conducive to, uh, NASA's, you know, need for engineers and people who are interested in science to go into that? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's not not it's not like NASA needs more. Science. Well, no, but I mean, like, but in science, I mean, but science in general, right? Yeah. But do so, you, do, well, you th- do you think our generation was conducive to that to that need? Um, not not more so than any other. Like, okay. Not more so than a normal amount. I guess. Okay, that's good. I mean, did you when you were in elementary school? I mean, was that was that a big thing? Where did you go to elementary school? I went to uh, Longfellow. It's just um, so you know, it was on the other end of Marshall. Uh, so yeah. you just go down from Central. You keep going, and you'd run into Longfellow. Longfellow closed, but when it was open, um, you know, it, we we had a science class, just like every elementary school presumably did, and you know, we did stuff. We folded planes, and we did the scientific method to see which wing would be better. I don't know. I mean, we did stuff, but. I uh, just, I don't know, I wasn't really particularly enthralled in science because of that class. I was more enthralled in science for my own desires to know about space and to know about how things worked. Right, and so I think that the, uh, like, events like uh, landing on the moon and things like that really would have inspired people more than, I mean, like you said, you're the type of person who is interested in things like that just naturally you wanted to find out more about it there was nothing like no i'm so curious i made a podcast about it hmm. <laughs> uh yes um but so there's there's no particular event nothing really extraordinary happened that made you want to do that and i think that if something were to happen that like the moon landing that uh it would be there would be a far greater draw to those areas of study and things. right, absolutely. And, but yeah, to, to answer your first question, what during our time in elementary school was there uh, a big draw for that? And I, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. More than normal. I mean, like okay. there's always the kids that are interested in those types of things, but no, there is no nothing like the moon landings to get everybody sort of behind it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so so I don't think, I mean, there was the the Mars rovers, but that landing it's, a robot that, that feels disconnected planet, for kids, I right? Guess. Yeah. But it doesn't inspire the same sort of pride as getting human to another planet, right? Wow, that's that was very interesting. Yes, it was. So, do you um, have anything else? Yeah, should I talk about the? dystopian futurist thing oh i think you can save that for next time okay yeah so are we gonna wrap it up then i think so all right it's been good so where can uh, people find you on the uh weird thing called the internet um well i have a blog which is updated very rarely which was mentioned in the show um link to it is in the the show notes. Show, 
notes. And that would be uh, sam.eberts. No, I think it's samuel.eberts. Nope, it's samebertswordpress.com. Yes, it is. Um, so you can find me there or at sameberts at Twitter. Um, yeah. Okay, or then. I'm on Facebook, I guess. You know me. But I'm not going to accept you if you're running your next <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing. And it's also fairly convenient that your audio distorted when you said that, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. And, of course, you can find me, Ryan Rampersad, all over the place on the Nexus uh, at Ryan, Ryan MR, uh, my blog, uh, and all over. And mm-hmm. this has been the first episode of The Universe, a show where Sam discusses science discrete mathematics, and all those other things I have no idea what I'm talking about in. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. Do you like an outro, like, see you next week or something like that? No, we don't have to. Okay. But, but well, I'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>